All right, we are live. Welcome, welcome to another Breach Report. We're excited to be kicking it off and talking to Mr. Robert Thomas. And Robert, please introduce yourself. Tell us a little bit about uh, you and your and, and your company. Uh, my name is Robert Thomas. I own a Pure Play Cybersecurity Consulting Company. 1808 Consulting, and I own a software development uh, company, primarily developing products and maturing products, focusing on the three-letter agency, Forest in Washington, D.C. So I've been in the cybersecurity cyber business for quite a while, working directly for the U.S. government, uh, the National Security Agency and the Department of Defense, uh, went into the private sector in 1999, uh, went back to the government service during the 9-11 time and then spent three years there, came back to the private sector. So I'm there full time now. Very gracious of you to invite me on the show. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Thank you. And as always, any live listeners, please, please uh, go ahead, put questions into the chat as we're going on any topics that you might have further questions on or be interested in. Of course, uh, I know that Robert uh, or myself would always be happy to answer questions after the show as well. So, Robert, 1990, you said, did you say 1999 is when you uh, made that cutover? Uh, yeah, I retired in 1999 from uh, military Department of Defense. I was an intelligence nice. officer, intelligence officer, primarily working outside of the United States and bunch of little third world countries. Wow. So how did, how did, when you made that transition over, how did that kind of like get you, how did you transition then into more cybersecurity in the private sector? Uh, well, the, the type of intelligence work I did for the Department of Defense, they love their acronyms. It was an acronym called SIGINT, Signals Intelligence. We would mm -hmm. gather, collect, and analyze various types of electronic transmissions. I worked First couple of years, I worked uh, what's between the Turkish border and the Chinese border in the north in the northeast, that area called the Transcaucus Military District. We're collecting information, primarily focused on that time the USSR collection, early stage analysis, package the information, send it back to NSA headquarters for deep analysis. So the move from cyber from that world to the cybersecurity world, fast forward 20 some years later, it wasn't a big leap. I mean, the technologies are all more or less the same. Sometimes in the cybersecurity world, we deal primarily with terrestrial transmissions, wires, fiber optic cable, that type of thing. On the DOD side, we primarily dealt with uh, non-terrestrial electronic communications, signals intelligence, electronic intelligence, cat, uh, systems that we call non-air breathing systems, satellites in space, SR-71 program, the U-2 spy plane program, and other programs that don't make the don't make the headlines like those two seem to do all the time. So it was a pretty seamless transition. That's great. Well, I know we've gotten to work with you, and and it's been. Uh, Great. You're just the utmost professional and you really, I mean, I learn a lot every time I, I feel like I talk to you. So one of the topics I know a lot that's really on a lot of people's mind is cybersecurity insurance. And you have some experience mm -hmm. with that. So I'd love to pick your brain because the cybersecurity insurance game has changed a lot in the last few years to what it is. Can you tell a little bit about 
what you've been doing with cybersecurity insurance to kind of just kind of set the, the baseline? Sure. Uh, we, we have relationships with uh, probably the top five insurance carriers uh, in America and over in Europe, Zurich, Zurich International over in Europe and bigger carriers in America. We uh, are in the information pipeline per se with their uh, underwriting departments to take a look at how the traditional cybersecurity insurance policy and their data collection efforts to build that policy for the business is evolving. And a big, a big push lately in the last uh, year, 18 months, two years, has been the evolution of a separate data collection effort and policy uh, body of work around ransomware prevention, ransomware defense. So we're seeing those, we're seeing those currently as two different documents, and the complexity is exponentially evolving. As, a, as an example, uh, we were working with a big carrier, and we were taking a look at their ransomware. Uh, data collection for underwriting documentation. 18 months ago, that was two pages uh, double-spaced. Now it's 19 pages double-spaced. So, I mean, the wow. they're, put, they're putting a lot more detail into underwriting, and it clearly shows in the policy documentation that they're sending out to their customers after data collection and analysis has been performed. Uh, what is, real quick question for that, when you say data collection, what is the data that they're you're starting to see them collect in, in the analysis that they're doing uh the data looks a lot like what a what a business would probably see if they're a downstream technology provider to an upstream contract vehicle kind of thing so everybody's everybody's probably familiar with that third party uh risk collection documentation yeah. Yeah. So I think that the I think that the insurance carriers started to use that as the foundation when it began, and now it's just evolving quickly, as as a lot of comp as a as a great many companies have been affected by ransomware, data exploitation, da uh, data breaching, things like that, and the insurance companies are getting a lot more information to build uh, a protection profile based on payouts. And you know, in, in the different areas that, that you'll see in your cybersecurity policy, things around PCI, PCI, DSS, fines and risks, reputational harm, risks, and the and the various areas in reputational harm uh, policy, where there's where there's mandatory payouts to help your business get you know build its reputation back. Uh, yeah. A lot of a lot of specific data collection and underwriting information around business disruption and what that cost actual cost to a business is, and where's the fiduciary responsibility to build up uh, disaster recovery business resumption planning proactively on behalf of the business, and what the underwriting and cost will be for businesses who the insurance carrier has deemed have not. Uh, fulfilled their fiduciary responsibility to build disaster recovery and business resumption planning proactively before looking at a policy. Uh, breach response is wow. another huge area. Yeah, breach response uh -huh. is another big big area for the carriers and underwriting, as is ransomware, everybody's favorite. You know, what, what have you done to institutionalize proactively 
a ransomware defense or ransomware prevention program, or have you done nothing? You know, you're just crossing your fingers and hoping that it doesn't come knocking on your door kind of thing. Yeah. So I want to talk more about the ransomware <laughs> before I do kind of a question about the, the insurance. So businesses, I think a lot of business owners are just getting kind of this information. They're used to just paying for an insurance, saying what they want for coverage and getting it. Now it sounds like that's changed because they have to live up to certain compliances, technology standards, and then prove it to the insurance carrier is what it's, what it's sounding like. Is that, is that how you see it, Robert? Uh, kind of. I mean, uh, standard policy has about 15, 16 areas that the carrier is going to provide limits of coverage for. And that limit okay. is going to be based yeah. on limits going to be ba limits going to be based on an analysis of what you've done proactively and how that okay. how that looks on a risk on a risk scale you know as an okay. as an example uh, uh, let, me, let me take a look here a, the the whole pci the whole pci fine thing if like uh, we were working on we we're working on a on a risk analysis for a northwest uh, customer up here a, a restaurant chain and they outsource okay. all of their uh, they outsource all of their PCI DSS risk to another company who does uh, uh, cash transaction and you know order taking and customer customer data acquisition and prevent and and uh, and excuse me customer data yeah, acquisition and protection. Okay. And protection. So uh, there, we we did some analysis on the risk of their of their public web presence and this company who said they were PCI DSS compliant and was accepting all this, these cash transactions and brokering all this customer data. So there, we took a look at that and found out that the, that the protections being offered by their PCI DSS transaction broker were pretty weak. And when the insurance company looked at them, they had a, they had a similar opinion. So they, the insurance company recommended that they would sell them 2 million in coverage. But last year in 2022, the average settlement cost for a PCI DSS break-in was $145 million on average. So, I mean, that so means- 2 million that, is like a, a drop in the bucket if, if there was a real breach. Right. So the insurance company is taking a look at what you've done and saying, okay, the risk of this happening is extremely high. Do we want to accept the risk and pay out $154 million, or do we want the business to, to do it? Or do we want them to ask us why it's so why it's so low? You know, I don't like I said I don't have any I don't have any uh, view into the underwriting uh, a shop for that for that insurance company, but that was that was shockingly low amount of coverage being offered by the carrier. Wow. So I'm, so I'm sure they have their They're outright getting really risk adverse in the cybersecurity world. And now if you're thinking about the underwriting process, they must have some technical people now taking a look at that risk to, to make that judgment call, I would assume. Uh, I would assume. I'm sure they have folks who they've either hired and trained or hired out of you know the university system who or or retiring cisos who understand the technology understand the risk and can and can do that analysis and turn it into normal people understandable 
business speak. So, but the, yeah. yeah, the underwriting process is interesting. I mean, things that we think of, things that we think of every day as risks in a business sense, I don't think people have a good idea of how to quantify it. You know, as an example, we all, everybody talks about uh, data breach and breach response. I mean, the average carrier recommended coverage is $2 million. However, in the last 12 months, the average payout uh, was bordering on $10 million. So what does that mean? Does it means the carrier wants you to pay out of pocket 8 million or they want to you to ask the questions so they can underwrite 10 million of risk. And what happens in the next 12 months? Is it going to go up to 12 million average payout or 20 million? Nobody knows. So it's like, where do you, you as the, as the consumer, as the business trying to manage your risk. So an event doesn't, doesn't wipe you out. You know, where do you find that happy medium between looking at, at the last 12 months of, of, of payouts and what's going to happen in the next 12 months. How's that? Is that going to escalate? Is it going to stay the same? What is it done? And the trends from the last 10 years are very poorly documented. So it's hard to build up that, that solid uh, underwriting kind of platform of information uh, year to year to year yeah. going backwards. So let's say, let's say a person's uh, an IT director in an organization and they're they're in charge of IT and they're you know they're a lot of times getting asked the decision makers are the ones that you know the owners are the ones putting in a request for insurance so what do they need to know as as an owner in an organization what is like an IT person need to know to support that initiative and make sure that the organization is covered when when it comes when it comes to this and i know that's start stemming into a broader conversation, but right. the games the games changed a lot. It has. It has changed and it is constantly evolving. I mean it's it's like uh it's like anything else. I think that the the leadership in the IT organization, the leadership in the security organization, the leadership on the business side, it behooves you to be brutally honest about what you know and you don't know. And this is one of those things where I think you should definitely go outside of the organization and get some help because it's a, it's a huge amount of money at risk. Just a huge amount of money. Yeah. It's just like, uh, as an example, uh, I was working with a big uh, international freight management company and a lot of their back end, matter of fact, all of their back end data systems ran on Oracle products as, as well as their finance systems. Uh, Oracle came in and did a license audit and then presented the CIO with a bill for $14 million in license violations. So uh, they gave us a call. We brought in the folks that we use for license management audit negotiation. And over the course of one year, they negotiated that bill, that $14 million bill down to $400,000. So I mean, the company could have paid the 14 million or they could have paid us what turned out to be $200,000 to do the negotiation on their behalf. So they, you know, they netted, they netted $12.4 million that they kept by bringing in an outside professional. So I think the same thing uh, is true uh, from the cybersecurity insurance perspective. And yes, we charge for that service. So I'll have to be totally honest about that. If they don't want to bring in 
me or you or somebody like us, bring in somebody you trust and get a, and get yeah. at least a second get at least a second opinion. There's a lot of yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of risk and a lot of financial risk here. Yeah, and I think the assumption is that the insurance is going to cover you, but then a lot of companies are starting to find out that insurance is not covering them, or, or just a small, like you said, a small, small fraction of the real cost, and it's like, you know it's it's really laying a lot of organizations. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, if I was if I was the IT leadership team or the security leadership team at a company who had re, who had received a request by management to to start negotiating cybersecurity insurance. I would certainly uh, take a look at those questionnaires from the insurance broker and look at those as a risk-based project management work plan. What do I have in place now? What do I not have in place? You know, if I were to prioritize those things, category one being high and four being low, how long and how much money would it cost me to implement these things? And then compare that to the policy cost, you know, the the risk avoidance in an insurance policy, and make a business decision. Yeah. But yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Let's let's talk about. I, I would love so something when we were talking earlier. I, I would love to dig into because it ties into insurance because one is to have the policy in place, the other is to do all the things to really prevent a breach. So. Let's talk about ransomware prevention versus just ransomware, just not defense, right? Really stopping it. So this sure. is a big thing I know that you put a lot of energy into. I know a lot, a lot about. Okay, uh, let me think. I, I should have planned ahead and had that ransomware prevention document open. Let me see if I can get that. Uh, ransomware prevention. The way that that we do it is is based is made up of five of five key areas. Uh, one moment. No, it's fine. Take your time. Because yeah. I know you put a lot of this into. It. Could you also refer to the doc? Is the document that you're referring to one that people could look up on their own on your website or? Uh, to be honest with you, we don't give that stuff away. It's just, sure. I mean, uh, we we have done a we have done a series on LinkedIn that they can look up uh, called the okay. Year of Anti the Year of Anti Ransomware. That was a multi part cool. uh, exercise we we went through. But uh, yeah, give me give me ten seconds to, to see if I can find yeah. this here. Take your time. Um, and. This, this is one of the things that ransomware is still in the news, not quite as much as it was two years ago, but I've noticed that the ransomware attacks haven't gone down. So the news is just kind of getting maybe a little tired of reporting it, but it doesn't mean it's not constantly happening to organizations and that the consequences to those organizations. In fact, a lot of the organizations that we're dealing with would never even Right. I think that it's, I think that it's just, uh, I mean, Gartner, I think Gartner said it best when Gartner uh, developed their hype cycle uh, 
reporting kind of thing. Ransomware was in the hype cycle for a long time, and now there's a whole lot of other things that are the flavor of the week from the from the fear porn perspective. You know what what do what what's make what are making business people concerned? So when 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 we meet with customers and we talk about ransomware prevention, uh, we we cut we have our methodology we call the big five. Uh, the number one thing uh, related to ransomware prevention is try to prevent prevent it in the first place. And we the number one recommendation we recommend to them is that they adopt a mature DNS security product or products from a reputable vendor. There's a whole lot of of people in that market space today. There's a few people who do it very, very well. And there's a lot of people who sell things, but you know, their their track record is is limited. So it's hard to say, it's hard to say is is it mature? I mean, every time you type on your keyboard and pretty much hit the enter key, you're doing a, what's called a DNS lookup. So you want a tool that will take a look at outbound if you're on if you're in your enterprise or if you have remote employees, which we all have today, you want to take a look at that outbound connection request from a DNS security perspective and make a split second decision. What's the what's the risk of that of that outbound connection request? Do I want to block it? Do I want to drop it? Do I want to report on it? You know, what, where's, where's the business value? Where's the risk mitigation value? Uh, the second thing your DNS security product should do for you is look at inbound connection requests to your remote employee's computer or to your enterprise firewall and decide whether to drop that inbound connection. Is it a probe? Is it an attack? Is it a data collection effort? Is somebody scanning your DMZ? You know, why do you want that traffic to come through your firewall? Why don't you want to just drop it before it ever gets to your firewall and get some of that precious bandwidth you're paying for back? Yeah. Uh, the and a, a really good a really good DNS uh, security product should do those things for you, and it should also update itself on a on a fairly uh, regular basis. I mean, the really really good ones can be tuned to update themselves every 20 minutes. You know, others can be tuned to update every 12 to 24 hours. It depends on the maturity of the vendor's threat intelligence uh, update update cycle. You know, and I get a lot of questions from customers, but I have a firewall, and the firewall vendor tells me that they bundle threat intelligence with it, and it had no cost. And the only thing I can say to them is, well, you know, how much effort do they put into that if they charge nothing for it? You have to give that some thought, you know. The things that you give away as a business, how much effort do you put into them? I mean, it's a loaded question, but it's a, but it's an on, it's an honest question. So I don't really, I don't recommend. As an example, when I was when my team was uh, in charge of cybersecurity for San Diego County, California, we had remote sites, 400 remote sites, every flavor of firewall known to man. Every one of those firewall vendors updated their threat intelligence on those firewalls with a different cycle and different content. The risk that that situation injected was astronomical. So we looked for a product that could work with any vendor's firewall and normalize the update cycle for the threat intelligence into that system to eliminate that ransomware risk, eliminate it. We didn't want to manage it anymore. It took too many labor dollars to manage it, to patch all that stuff, you know, and to follow up and make sure the patches took. 
or the updates to their threat intelligence that took. It was just it was just an absolute and complete nightmare. It was a labor dollar suck. Who wants to do that? When you when nowadays you can you can automate it. Uh, the next thing that we, we talked to folks about from a ransomware prevention perspective is password management. And especially for the remote team, your data center and your and your cloud applications and, and your your cloud uh, platform as a service, infrastructure as a service type of stuff. And uh, the things that we recommend they focus on first and foremost are non-human accounts. Okay. You know, when was the last time your Active Directory Kerberos encryption key was rolled over and updated. 99.999% of the people we talk to, they just, they have, it's never been done. So it's like, right. you know, that's an enormous risk. And the, your service accounts, your non-human accounts on the Windows side, on the Linux side, you know, your daemons, things like that. You need to have a plan to automate the changing of those passwords, hopefully based on risk. You know, once that's automated and you can wipe yeah. it off your risk portfolio, then we start. Then we start to look at human-based accounts. You know, also from a risk perspective, that's how it. often? How often do you want to change those passwords, or what type of complexity thing? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, We've seen in environments people have service. Say they have a service account for like Veeam backups and mm -hmm. domain admin. That password, you know, runs the backups. They're running nightly, maybe even every half hour, something like that. Password mm -hmm. never changes for years. Right, and uh, and people don't. Uh, a lot of people don't look at uh, CPU utilization during off hours. I mean, CPU utilization during off hours is a is a clear indicator that some something some automated thing is trying to crack passwords during you know during the times that you're sleeping the the windows sysvol container on everybody's laptop contains an enormous amount of passwords and if you go to sleep at nine o'clock at night and you get up at eight in the morning it's somebody somebody has you know 11 hours that they can you know keep your cpu pegged trying to crack the passwords in that sysvol container, it's a serious risk. So, I mean, you can, you can either try to install, you know, things to check CPU utilization on every endpoint. Say you have a thousand endpoints, that becomes a nightmare. Or you can just centrally change the password <clears throat> time to live. Say, now it's eternal for your service accounts. Change it to every eight hours. Change it to every four hours. Who cares? I mean, you're, it's a it's a complete and utter automation, and and it's a great it's a it's a fantastic way to eliminate business risk. Yeah, that's, a, I mean, that's the, third, yeah, the third thing we recommend to folks for uh, ransomware prevention is backup architecture analysis. Uh, a lot of people, a great majority of people today, are backing up systems and applications and data to their cloud environment: AWS, Alibaba, Google, Microsoft. What does that backup architecture look like? Could you inadvertently be backing up uh, uh, sorry, malware that's active and, and working in your backups and inadvertently import it into your, you know, your, your hopefully your critical backups, the ones you're going to restore from in the cloud? And what does that architecture look like? 
how do you take a how do you take a critical system like say Oracle Financial data for your, you know, you just finished quarter end, you close the books for the quarter, you close the books monthly for the last three months, and you want to back up that data and archive it. How do you do that? Do you do you just do it as a blob object and shove it into Veeam or something else that pumps it up to the cloud, or do you stop and do some deep, deep, deep uh, threat scanning? in those blob objects looking for risks before you send it up to the cloud. You know, what does that architecture look like? So we make the recommendation that, that, they, that we put a lot of effort into what, that, what the value of that data, the value of those applications is, and take a hard look at uh, that backup architecture and make recommendations. Yeah, that, that makes a lot, a lot of sense. Oh, thanks for, thanks for sharing that. that that's, that's really huge. Now, you guys are also doing a lot. Something you mentioned earlier is kind of the web service security for API mm -hmm. DFS risk. Mm -hmm. Talk, uh, what are companies missing there and what, what do they need to do to protect their organizations? Uh, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a twofold question. You know, number one, what does your DMZ architecture look like? I mean, do you have, do you have web services in one collision domain in the DMZ, business logic in another, and data in another, or do you have all three of those components in the same IP collision domain in the DMZ? So they share risk, completely share risk. That's right. that's a big that's a big piece of it. I mean, we'll take a look at the DMZ architecture from we'll scan it, find out what's up there, and then we'll take a look at at your web services security and APIs that are public facing. You know, because they're 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 right now like cream and coffee. Once you stir the cream in the coffee, you can't get it out. And web services security and API security are pretty much the same thing nowadays. You know, an, an API request is a direct request to a data structure. If, you're, if your team or your uh, security provider hasn't mentioned the OWASP API top 10 security best practices to you, I'd strongly recommend you get a second opinion. I mean. At the County of San Diego, we couldn't wait for OWASP top 10, so we came up with our county top 11. And then when OWASP top 10 came out, surprise, surprise, they mirrored ours perfectly. You know, we'd already started to put that stuff in place. You know, make sure that no connections are allowed unless they're authenticated. You know, and you and throttling on the connection. If somebody, if the connection comes in and it's authenticated correctly. And then says, give me all data and all databases. You know, holy cow, that's crazy. Don't do that. You know, we, you know, OWASP and, you know, we recommend you got to throttle those connection requests. You know, what are they, don't give them 10 million records, you know, give them 100 at a time or 1,000 at a time, depending on how well you know that person. From the web services security perspective, it's always a, uh, it's always a compromise between business agility and cybersecurity. <clears throat> I mean, if you look at the folks who are, if you use uh, any of the top 10 uh, web services security scanners out there and take a look at the big boys like Microsoft.com or uh, TransAmericaFinancialServices.com and scan them, you'll see that on the, on the as an example, the observatory.mozilla.org uh, web services security scanner, which is very well thought of. Microsoft, Transamerica, some of these other big companies, they get a B minus, maybe a C plus, 
you know, because they're really they're, they really have to make a risk judgment between what the cust what you know the the agility of the site to provide value to the customer and and absolutely strict cybersecurity. So it's like anything else. What you what you know or what you don't know is uh, is the the big problem. If you're not scanning your your company's web services infrastructure at least once a month or at least after every patch or at least after every content upgrade, then you're opening yourself up for some pretty big problems. And since that the scanning sense. is yeah, since the scanning is free and they'll even do the analysis for you for free, it's and this and the the analysis is really quite good. It's hard to beat. Yeah, that, that's a great tip. That's a great tip for an organization to be able to to leverage that. And I'm sure your organization or mine would love to help them with that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So no, that, that's huge. Now in the industry, you're also one last question I wanted to, you know, um, pose to you is like, how can people get in contact with you uh, if they have questions and a little bit about, you know, some follow up content that they might be interested in or just having a discussion with you? Sure. Uh, our public website is www.thesecretciso.com, all one word. In there's a lot of content up there that we give away for free for small and mid-sized businesses. So anybody's free to take a look there and you can get in touch with us through that, or you can reach me directly on LinkedIn. My LinkedIn profile as is leader with vision, Robert Thomas, that's leader with vision, all one word or yeah. through, through Ephraim. That's right. Yeah. We love, we love working together on the, on the joint engagements. And so it's, it's been great. Thanks. Thanks for coming on Robert. And thanks for, uh, Joining on the Breach Report. Thank you very much. Very gracious All with right. your time. I appreciate it. Appreciate it. Talk soon. Bye.